0: Uh, good, good morning. Good morning, everyone. My name is Fred Kempe. I'm President and CEO of the Atlantic Council. <coughs> um, and uh, it's my priv- privilege to welcome you to today's conference, Ukraine 2016-2017, Progress, Opportunities and Challenges. Since Maidan, Ukraine has made remarkable progress in undertaking a reform prog- process. Today we've gathered a range of experts on Ukraine to assess the progress made and discuss what lies ahead. I'm awfully um, proud of the work that the Atlantic Council has done uh, since 2014, where we've been at the forefront of thinking, strategy, and advocacy regarding Ukraine. We recognized early on that this was a national issue, a regional issue, a European issue, a transatlantic issue, and a global issue that goes to the heart of protection of national sovereignty and the preservation of a principled international order. It's the reason that we've put enormous efforts behind this and behind one of the best teams at the Atlantic Council Ambassador John Herbst, uh, Alina Polyakova, Geisha Gonzalez and all the people working uh, for John in our Eurasia Center, Patricio Eurasia Center. We're live streaming the day's events, so welcome also to those joining us remotely. We always have a big crowd live streaming when we have a Ukraine event. We encourage everyone to be part of the discussion by using the hashtag FutureUkraine and at ACEurasia. I'd also like to uh, extend a special welcome and thanks to our partners at the Zumkov Center for their efforts to make this conference possible. As many, many of you know, this center is one of Ukraine's leading think tanks and it is a great honor for us always to work with them. In addition in the audience today, we have the pleasure of having George Czapivsky with us, one of our top board members, and one of the pioneers of our work on Ukraine. It's also my distinct honor always to welcome Senator Rob Portman of Ohio here, who I'll have the pleasure of introducing momentarily. After his opening comments, uh, Minister Natalie Juresco will speak, the former Minister of Finance, also a long-time friend of the Atlantic Council. Uh, and then in the opening session, we'll also have some welcoming remarks from uh, the Ambassador Valerie Chali, a uh, great friend of ours as well. Uh, he'll, he'll be leaving uh, early in the day because he is going uh, out to uh, is Kansas where, with, where the, with Kansas City, where there's a commemoration of uh, America's entry into World War I, uh, where the ambassador will be representing the president of, of Ukraine. So uh, his comments will be in the opening session rather than in the 1055 session. Uh, later this afternoon, we'll also have the privilege to hear from Senator a- Amy uh, Klobuchar, who will, be pr- who will provide closing remarks. Both senators who will be speaking today have uh, displayed unshakable support uh, for Ukraine. Three years after Maidan, uh, Ukraine still faces critical challenges on economic and political reforms that we all know about and lacks the ability to defend itself against Russian aggression. According to official estimates, more than 10,000 people have lost their lives in eastern Ukraine since April 2014. The humanitarian crisis in the East remains dire and the fighting and harassment of civilians by the Russian-backed separatists continues unabated. And yet, despite all odds, Ukraine has made commendable progress along the reform path it set itself three years ago. When When you understand the obstacles, it is all the more commendable. Today we ask you, a very distinguished group of experts, scholars, and leaders to look back on Ukraine's progress in governance and political reform examine the ongoing war in Ukraine's East, evaluate Ukraine economy, all while looking to identify the opportunities that lie ahead. In 2014, when few think tanks were focusing on Ukraine, the Atlantic Council founded our Ukraine in Europe initiative within the Dinu Patriciu Eurasia Center. Since then, it has grown into one of the leading Ukraine programs in DC. The initiative has worked to galvanize international support for an independent Ukraine defined by secure borders and an enfranchised population able to determine its own future. Since 2014, we've made progress toward this goal through publication of reports such as Hiding in Plain Sight. That solicited 138 138 million media impressions for the hashtag Putin at war. And we had 1.5 million downloads of this report in its Russian version, showing how much interest there was among Russian speakers of knowing what was really going on uh, with Russia and Ukraine. We also partnered with Brookings, the Chicago Council of Global Affairs, to issue the report Preserving Ukraine's Independence, Resisting Russian Aggression, What the United States and NATO Must Do, uh, Calling for Defensive Weapons for Ukraine. That won the University of Pennsylvania's Best Collaborative Think Tank Award. But we're not in this to win awards or get downloads of a report. We're in this to make a positive difference. And with all of you, I think we can continue to do that. We've worked to shine a spotlight on the ongoing crisis in Crimea and Ukraine's east by hosting numerous events. Most recently, we hosted a conference this past fall in the European Parliament with MEP's uh, Anna Uh, Anna Bilt and Anna Fotiga on Ukraine's humanitarian crisis, and last month with Congressman uh, Jerry Connolly and Steve Chabot on the anniversary of the illegal annexation of Crimea. Today's conference is a continuation in these efforts to galvanize the transatlantic community to ensure an independent, secure, and prosperous Ukraine. We know this isn't about one report. It isn't about one conference. It's an ongoing initiative that the Atlantic Council will stay with. Leading off today's discussion, I have the honor of welcoming Senator Rob Portman from Ohio. Senator Portman has shown impeccable leadership in supporting Ukraine and his people. He is the founder and co-chair of the Senate Ukraine Caucus and a member of the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committees. He's one of the most impressive thinkers and actors on international policy issues in America today former U.S. Trade Representative, who acted during his time in office to reduce barriers on exports, leveling the playing field for farmers, workers, and service providers. It's not the first time, Senator, that we've had you at the Council. Last year, you and your colleague, Senator Chris Murphy, uh, launched here your Countering Disinformation and Propaganda Act, an effort designed to help American allies counter foreign government propaganda from Russia, China, and other nations. The act was announced at the Atlantic Council on March 16, 2016, shortly after it was introduced on the Senator floor. Most recently, at the end of last month, Senator Portman introduced a resolution on behalf of Ohio's Ukrainian community condemning illegal Russian aggression in Ukraine and urging the U.S. President to maintain sanctions on Russia as long as these actions continue. Senator we thank you for your leadership and we turn the floor to you.
1: Fred, thanks very much. It is great to be back. And, and Fred is correct uh, both about the Atlantic Council's key role uh, with regard to Ukraine, but also the fact that it was about a year ago almost exactly that I was here to announce our disinformation legislation, uh, which is now law, by the way. And already the State Department is uh, putting in place the Global Engagement Center that it calls for. And I want to thank Fred personally and the Atlantic Council for their work with us, Senator Murphy and I, are appreciative of the effort that went into that. It's not typical these days uh, that there is anything much good getting done on a bipartisan basis in Washington. Uh, And more importantly, it's not typical that something would be announced and then enacted into law within such a short space of time. It was enacted into law late last year. So we thank you, Fred, for for that work. And of course, uh, what you do every day to strengthen the relationship between the United States and our, our allies in Europe, the broader focus of the Atlantic Council. Um a lot has happened uh, in that last year since I was here, and I think suffice it to say that we probably uh, could have fit everybody in washington d c who was focused on the information war, uh, particularly the threat from Russia, uh, in this one room. And today this is a this is a topic that uh, of course is on the front pages of the newspapers and on the uh, broadcast news constantly. so, Things have changed. Uh, our legislation is now law, and that gives us a chance to be able to better organize the U.S. government response to that information war. No one understands the consequences of Russia's information war uh, better, of course, than the people of Ukraine. And I've learned that firsthand during my visits to Ukraine. I've also learned that uh, in our work we're doing with the Ukraine Caucus in in the, uh, in the Washington here, uh, also on the Foreign Relations Committee where I, I now sit. Uh, and I was not on the Foreign Relations Committee a year ago, and um, we've already had a couple of hearings that focus uh, on this issue. Um, I've also had the opportunity to meet, as Fred indicated, with our Ukrainian community in Ohio. Uh, we have a, a strong Ukrainian-American connection uh, through Ohio, and uh, they've helped to keep me informed of what's going on uh, in Ukraine. This morning I've been asked to talk a little about that, what's happening in Ukraine, what my perspective is on Ukraine, and I'm, I'm uh, happy to do that. I think. Although great challenges remain, uh, we have made progress even in the last year and certainly in the last several years. Uh, I'm going to talk about ways I think the United States and its allies can help to encourage more progress. I would say that the good news is that three years after Russia annexed Crimea and 25 years since Ukraine regained its independence, uh, I believe Ukraine has come closer to realizing what I would consider the more open and democratic future that so many Ukrainians fought for on the Maidan. And it has done so in the face of direct military aggression from Russia and its proxies in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, severe economic and social pressures, and persistent Russian information operations designed to subvert the authority of the Ukrainian government, undermine faith in Ukraine's institutions, demoralize the Ukrainian people, and persuade the West, frankly, that Ukraine is a failed state, not worth the effort to prop up. So progress has been made, and it has been made uh, in the face of real challenges. When we talk about Ukraine's fight to defend itself and pursue the future the Ukrainian people called for in the Maidan, I think we're essentially talking about two, what I would consider distinct, but probably related conflicts. The first is the external conflict, which we've talked about a lot here at the Atlantic Council, and that's the ongoing political, economic, military, and information aspects of Ukraine's fight to defend itself. Uh, that's ongoing. I met with Ambassador Chali, who's here with us this morning, I think we'll hear from in, in a moment, uh, on this very topic. Uh, Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we discussed some of the issues that are going on today in Ukraine in in some detail, the daily human cost uh, as the fighting in the east of Ukraine continues. By the way, despite the Minsk ceasefire agreements, Russia continues to arm, train, equip, organize and lead separatist forces in eastern Ukraine, while thousands of Russian troops are currently stationed in the Crimea and along the border. Uh, Some have said it's a frozen conflict. Uh, I, I don't think. Ambassador Cholly, you would agree that the conflict is frozen. Uh, Sadly, it's not frozen. I don't think it's ever been frozen. I don't think it will end until something happens to alter Russia's calculation about whether continuing to fuel this conflict is worth the price. In the United States Senate, at least, we've been able to build a pretty durable bipartisan consensus on support for Ukraine. Even in today's highly charged partisan atmosphere I mentioned earlier, we've been able to keep ourselves focused uh, on trying to be helpful to Ukraine. These bipartisan efforts, uh, fostered by the Senate Ukraine Caucus, which Senator Durbin and I started about two years ago, key members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senate Armed Services Committee, and others continue to generate new initiatives. In fact, just last week, Senator Sherrod Brown and I introduced a bipartisan resolution commemorating the three-year anniversary of the annexation of Crimea and reaffirming US support for Ukraine and efforts to hold Russia accountable for its violations of Ukrainian sovereignty and territorial integrity. So there is a bipartisan consensus still on this issue, which we must hold. Uh, There's also a bipartisan agreement on the policy tools the U.S. should utilize as part of its comprehensive U.S. strategy to support Ukraine, deter future aggression against our allies and interests, and uphold the fundamental principles of the U.S.-led international system that Russia's actions ultimately threaten. These policies include continued enforcement of joint U.S.-EU sanctions. Uh, Yesterday, we had the opportunity to hear from Uh, the ambassador from the EU and the Foreign Relations Committee. And we talked about the fact that the six-month extension of the sanctions is a positive thing, uh, that the EU is an incredibly important ally in this. Uh, We also have continued uh, increased uh, discussion of both lethal and non-lethal military assistance to Ukraine. I believe it's fair to say that there is a bipartisan majority in the United States Congress that supports not just non-lethal but also lethal assistance so Ukraine can better defend itself. Uh, during the confirmation process, Secretary Tillerson expressed his agreement with that approach, by the way, uh, and that's something that you continue to uh, to hear uh, the, uh, the administration talk about. We need to move forward with that, in my view. Uh, in the Congress, we're talking about an enhanced U.S. military presence in the region, more robust and coordinated efforts to counter Russian propaganda and disinformation in Ukraine and, for that matter, throughout Europe, including with the elections in France and Germany upcoming and a unity of action between the U.S. and the EU on holding Russia accountable for its violations of the Minsk agreements, the Budapest memorandum, for that matter, and and other international norms and agreements. So I think there is a general bipartisan agreement on the policy tools that the U.S. should be utilizing. The second conflict I want to mention in Ukraine is the internal struggle. So we talked about the external side. We'll hear much more about that today. There's also an internal struggle to fulfill the promise of the Maidan. And finally, break free of the corruption, lack of accountability, and mismanagement that has hamstrung previous Ukrainian efforts to chart an independent, democratic, and pro-Western path. This may ultimately be as hard to win as the external conflict, but it's crucial to Ukraine's long-term success. Both are. I believe that corruption and weak institutions fuel the spread of Russian influence more than virtually anything else, both in Ukraine and throughout the world. Thus, the political and economic reforms are not just key to achieving greater transparency and accountability in government, which is so important, they're also national security priorities. The Ukrainian government, with the help of Ukraine's vibrant civil society, has made tremendous strides in tackling 25 years of cronyism, waste, fraud, and abuse throughout the government. For example, the Ukrainian government's successful management of the temporary nationalization of Privat Bank, Ukraine's largest private bank, is an underappreciated success story, in my view. A better known example is the joint U.S.-Ukrainian effort to reform the police and border guard service. The successful introduction of roughly 16,000 new border police, new patrol police, sorry, across Ukraine, trained by Ukrainian and American instructors is an example of that. By the way, this includes instructors from the Dayton, Ohio Police Department, and I'm very proud of them and the efforts that they have made. This has been a highly visible and powerful message of progress in building the new Ukraine. The U.S. and NATO train and equip program has helped produce real improvements in the tactical proficiency of ukrainian forces as evidenced by successful recent combat actions against russian-led separative forces such as in the clashes in Adivga at the end of january despite these successes ukraine continues to face challenges implementing difficult structural reforms now, i want to highlight two key areas, key areas where i think continued engagement from ukraine and sustained assistance by its western partners including here at the atlantic council will be particularly important. The first is the defense institutional reforms necessary to sustain the gains Ukraine's military has made over the long term and complete its transformation into a modern professional fighting force aligned with NATO standards and procedures. Under Senator McCain's leadership, uh, I have helped draft U.S. security assistance for Ukraine as part of the National Annual Defense Authorization Bill for the past two years and the importance of defense institution building reforms, such as improved logistics and sustainment capabilities, will continue to be a focus because it is so important. For the first time, last year's military assistance package conditioned half of U.S. military assistance on successful progress toward implementing key defense reforms, such as civilian control of the military, greater parliamentary oversight, and budget and procurement transparency and accountability. The other critical reform priority I wanted to mention is the need for tangible, visible, and high-impact results from Ukraine's judicial reforms and anti-corruption initiatives. Ukraine and the United States have partnered on a number of projects to help reform the prosecutor's general office and judicial system and have helped implement promising new initiatives like the National Anti-Corruption Bureau and the Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office. I believe that successful prosecutions of corrupt high-level officials or former officials or businessmen will generate meaningful momentum for President Poroshenko's reform agenda and demonstrate Ukraine's commitment to real and lasting reforms. After the Obama administration's somewhat belated and reactive response to Russia's aggression in Ukraine and broader reluctance to assume America's traditional leadership role in confronting and deterring security challenges around the world, not just in Ukraine, I know that many of you are anxious or curious to see what new approach the Trump administration might take to Ukraine, Russia, and America's role in the world. Uh, I am curious also. Um, Let me just uh, take a brief moment to share a few quick thoughts on how we might look at the road ahead. In my view, the new administration represents an opportunity, and it's an opportunity for a kind of real reset, uh, one that renews America's commitment to our European allies, including Ukraine, and rededicates American foreign policy to upholding the shared interests and values that underpin the U.S.-led international system, upon which our national security and economic prosperity absolutely depends. The President has got a really impressive national security team, in my view. Uh, This includes, of course, professionals like Secretary Mattis, Secretary Tillerson, Lieutenant General McMaster, Secretary Kelly, the U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, and even the Atlantic Council's very own, Fred, Um, to have Governor John Huntsman as our next ambassador to Russia is a very good sign, in my view. Uh, I think these are the kind of people you would want to have developing and executing the national security strategy we need particularly as it relates to to Ukraine. Some of you may know this, but General McMaster uh, literally led the Army's Lessons Learned Project on Russia's New Generation War Doctrine and its application in Ukraine. So he's very familiar with the situation in Ukraine. In addressing a daunting array of security challenges around the world, one of America's enduring advantages over our adversaries is our alliances around the world. It truly is incredible. There is no nation in history that's ever been able to count on such a vast network of allies and partners around the world willing to go to war alongside U.S. forces, voluntarily open their markets to U.S. trade and investment, actively solicit our input and involvement in working toward shared goals, and agree to uphold shared interests, norms, and values. This is a tremendous strength that we have. To be clear, all of our partner nations need to do their part in upholding the shared burden that we have. Um, I do believe it is unacceptable that only five of our 28 NATO member states can be said to meet the required 2 percent GDP threshold for defense spending, as as an example. Yet at the end of the day, we have got to remember the pivotal role these nations play in helping us to confront an increasingly dangerous, complex, and insecure world, a task we would otherwise be left to do alone. We have to build our alliances. The values and interests we share are the glue that keeps this valuable network of friends and allies together. Thus, America is ultimately strongest when its allies are strong too. In my view, restoring American strength and leadership goes hand in hand with renewing America's longstanding commitment to its allies and willingness to assume a leadership role in addressing shared challenges. To conclude, despite the uncertainties and risks of today's increasingly complicated strategic landscape, I remain fundamentally optimistic about Ukraine's prospects and the durability of the U.S. support for Ukraine in Congress. The United States and its allies must redouble their political, economic, and military support for Ukraine as part of a broader U.S.-led regional engagement strategy. Ukraine should also continue to make progress on implementing its ambitious reform agenda, as I noted today. And its friends in the West should help empower Ukrainian reformers by using its assistance to incentivize the fulfillment of some of these key reform objectives we talked about. I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk again about Ukraine today, and and again, Fred, thank you for your continued personal engagement and support in the Atlantic Council's uh, tremendous support for our disinformation legislation and our ongoing efforts to help Ukraine. Uh, Fred mentioned that we have uh, among us uh, a number of distinguished guests. One I now have the privilege of introducing, uh, one of the best known of the Ukrainian reformers, someone who shares transatlantic values, someone who has served uh, both the government of the United States and the Ukrainian government. Uh, former Ukrainian finance minister, Natalie Uresko. Having met with her during her tenure as finance minister, I I can attest to the valuable role she played in guiding policies and developing trust between President Poroshenko's new government and senior U.S. officials and members of Congress. By the way, she was always very frank in her discussions, which I always appreciate. Uh, She was important in developing that trust uh, between senior U.S. officials and members of Congress, both, uh, many of whom were excited about the Changes happening in Ukraine, but weren't quite sure what to make of the post-Maidan Ukraine or its new government. I'm really pleased she's joining us today and look forward to hearing her perspective. Thanks again for inviting me to speak today, Fred. And we'll now turn to Minister Uresko. Spanish?
2: <laughs> Not today. Thank you very much, Mr. Senator. My thanks to the Atlantic Council, uh, to the Razumkov Center, and to all of you today for coming to focus on a subject near and dear to my heart, and I assume to many of yours. I think today what's interesting is finally the Western democracies are waking up to the efforts of the Kremlin to destroy or at least disrupt our liberal democracies. One headline after another, United States, France, Brexit, Germany, Ukraine has been at the forefront of this, as the senator said, this hybrid war, for over three years. And many thought to themselves, this situation in Ukraine, this is just part of Russia's sphere of interest. This is sphere of interest politics, and many here in Washington and in other capitals throughout the world questioned whether or not, really, we should be involved in something that might be, in fact, in the sphere of interest of Russia, we, we, we wondered, some wondered, many questioned whether it was worth denying the Kremlin's desire to rebuild its empire, its sphere. But today we see that Ukraine is simply uniquely close t- on the very front of the battleground globally. It is not about the Kremlin's sphere of interest. It is not about the Kremlin rebuilding its empire or at a bare minimum, it is not only those issues. The world believed after the Cold War that the opposition to our liberal democracies, to our post-World War II order had been lost, that the communist system fell and therefore we won. Our sense of post-liberal, post-World War II order, our liberal democracies, our values and freedoms were those that won over those of the ill-fated communist system. And we now see that in its place something else grew, an autocratic, oligarchic system that fears and despises our system of freedoms and values equally, perhaps, to the, to the Kremlin then, and fights this war today globally to destroy the transatlantic partnership, the Europe, the whole and free, and our post-World War II order. And now that we have come to understand globally the depth of the Kremlin's hatred of our values and their willingness to use all the tools at their disposal to disrupt our way of life, we must act in a concerted fashion to defend our ideas and our way of life. And Ukraine is the perfect case, the perfect place in which to defend this. I used to say that the reforms in Ukraine represented a glass that was half full. I've come to believe that it's more than half full. It's more than half full because our civil society in Ukraine is demanding, engaged, and unwilling to allow for reversal. It's true that that half full glass or more than half full glass represents more economic and anti-corruption reforms than were instituted during the previous 20 years of of our governance. But it's been repeated over and over, and it's important to note time and time again, what we did in that half full glass, because against many of the accusations, and the Senator mentioned this, in 2014, people believed Ukraine was a failed state. That with the largest standing Europe attacking, with a financial crisis, that in in effect meant there was no funding, debt that was going to lead to a a disruptive default, that Ukraine could not continue as an independent state. And, in fact, I would argue that we showed that to be completely and entirely false. We returned representative democracy to Ukraine through a series of elections at every single level. We rebuilt our military and we stopped the aggressor in his tracks. We turned around our fiscal policy, throwing away fiscal deficits and public spending patterns from the previous 20 years. We stopped having arrears in wages to our our citizens, in pensions to our citizens, practices that had gone on from day one in independent Ukraine. We built an independent central bank. We rebuilt our central bank reserves. We calmed our currency. We cleaned up a weak and fragmented banking system. We began serious gas market reform, eliminating corruption of the middlemen, that had been siphoning off billions of dollars each year, eliminating rent-seeking behavior and different prices in the market, introducing competition into the actual sale of gas, introducing independent board members into our state oil and gas company, auditing that state oil and gas company for the first time in its history. And as a result, we haven't had to purchase Russian gas directly from Gazprom for over 500 days. We restructured our sovereign debt without a dismal and messy default, And we built and financed and staffed these new anti-corruption institutions. We adopted a very long overdue constitutional judicial reform in October of last year. Yes, all that and more, all that with, at the same time, 10,000 dead, 20,000 wounded, 1.9 million internally displaced people, and even today, even yesterday and the day before, during our ceasefire, Ukrainian citizens are dying at the front to protect our freedoms. So could a failed state have accomplished all of that in the last three years? Absolutely not. Could a failed state have done all that and dedicate 5% of its GDP to defense and security? Not 2%, the NATO numbers, 5%. A failed state could not have done that. So no, the glass is half full simply by recitation of what has been done today. But it's more than half full, I return, because in Ukraine today, there is a civil society, not Western governments, not the IMF, not an enlightened elite, and not a benevolent autocrat dictating the direction of Ukraine's reforms. It is civil society that's dictating the direction of Ukraine's reforms. I think it's also important to remember that Ukraine comes to this global environment, comes to Washington and every other capital, not only as a country with needs, and requests for support but it comes as a member of a global society and a co- major contributor ukraine can help make america great again N- number 1 ukraine is probably one of the largest markets for ukrainian good, for american excuse me goods and services that is completely not visible in the streets of ukraine so whether you're an exporter of U.S. automobiles or U.S. agricultural equipment, 35 million people, an incredibly robust agricultural economic economy, and they are not fully sat- satisfied, they're not fully using their quota of American goods and services. Ukraine's economic growth will result in very positive things for many American s- sectors. Aside from that, Ukraine is a partner in global security, has been, is, and will be. Yes, it began with nuclear de- pro- deproliferation or non-proliferation, giving up its nuclear weapons to make the world a safer place, not just Ukraine, the world a safer place. But it continued in terms of the Ukrainian participation in coalition of the willing, it continued with Ukraine's participation in U.S. peacekeeping, and it continues to this day in Ukraine's fight against the Kremlin on the border of Europe. Ukraine could also be a net contributor and a potential strategic partner in today's cybersecurity issues. Ukraine ought to be brought into that as a net contributor. So my argument is not only is the glass half full in Ukraine, it's more than half full. And not only is Ukraine a country that demands and is worthy of continued support, at a time when the Kremlin, Ukrainian vested interests aided by irresponsible populists fight the reforms that have been conducted to date, fight the future of other reforms that are needed to fill that glass to the top and ensure that first half are irreversible. It is now more than ever the time to double down on support for this very, very strategic country and this extraordinarily successful situation. Aid and support the reformers, finance and guide the reforms, support civil society, support the Ukrainian military, support and invest in the Ukrainian people, in the Ukrainian medical institutions, medical hospitals, medical, uh, excuse me, schools, education, that which will make Ukrainians even stronger in their fight and in their role to be a partner in this post-World War II liberal order. I fear that today, Many of our Western partners don't have any tools in their hands. And I'm I'm all for conditionality, so d- mind you, I'm not suggesting anything comes free. Nothing comes free in the world. But I fear that many of our partners have to, no longer tools available. After the Maidan, the world came to us with support. The United States provided several billion dollars of credit guarantees. The European Union provided 1.8 billion euro in macro financial support. The World Bank came up with development funding. All of that, or most of it with one small exception, has been utilized. There's nothing else behind that. So today what we have is a situation where, more than ever, Ukraine has shown its capacity to use these funds, its capacity and desire to reform, and the fact that this reform desire comes from the bottom up, and the West does not have the tools with which to continue helping Ukraine. And so I urge Western governments to come up with those tools and come up with them quickly because the reformers need those tools to fight those vested interests, to fight those Kremlin interests, and to fight those who want to reverse these reforms. Together, Ukraine and the Western democracies can assure that Ukraine is the successful bulwark of our successful, valuable, Post-World War II liberal order. Thank you. And <clears throat> it's uh, my great honor to introduce right now the Ukrainian Ambassador to the United States, Mr. Ambassador Valery Chali.
3: Good morning. Senator Portman, members of Ukrainian Parliament, President Kempe, distinguished audience, it's a great pleasure and honor to be here and you know to make such an, uh, in such an important event to make open remarks. Let me begin with uh, start with uh, thanking to Atlantic Council team, President Kempe, Ambassador Herbst, uh, Alina Polikova, Geisha Gonzalez for very intense Ukrainian agenda with this, your activities. And it's helped us a lot to understand what's happened in this important part of the world. Why it's Ukraine matter? Why is Europe matter? And nowadays, we see the new threats in North Korea with new launch of missiles. We see using the chemical weapons in Syria. But please not forget that World War I and World War II began in Europe. I see Europe is a very important part for the twenty-first century. So our idea how to bring closer vision for the future from the United States, Western Alliance, and Ukraine. Definitely we need Russia as a reliable, predictable partner in the future, not a threat. For Ukraine, it's even more challengeable now, is even our last meetings or last conferences. Again, because last week, we lose nine officers and soldiers. A week before that, six. Plenty wounded. So we see that Russia brought more and more troops to our borders. And that's a threat that exists now, not in the future. So we need to make response now. Do we have the, such a common vision how we will develop Europe, and we will develop security in Europe? Uh, frankly, among ambassadors, we discussed months ago some concern about lack of vision here in the United States. Now we are even more optimist because we see there's no great challenges, not great differences for the previous position. The, I, the decision by President Trump to have the first international visit to Brussels realize NATO headquarters is a good decision. Our level of cooperation between Ukraine and U- United States, for me as ambassador, is uh, pretty satisfied of that, because we had a phone conversation among presidents. We had a meeting with Vi- Vice President Pence, ministers of Foreign Affairs. We have a very intensive agenda. But what, what do we need? Substance. And uh, I appreciate, as my friends make a uh, uh, opening remarks, very substantial op- opening remarks, and I agree completely, so two important tasks for Ukraine, for respond to these challenges. Internal, facilitate the program of reforms because, uh, you know, it's the only opportunity to demonstrate ability in Ukraine not only survive but develop in the future. And, still, not forget please, we are in a state of war. We can name it anti terrorist operation, something else, but we are in a state of war, with our neighbor. That's a challenge and situations which we never before think about. That's why I think it's the right time to discuss many issues. And I'm pleasure also in honor to share this, uh, this uh, to, share, uh, to speak together with my colleagues in the Razum Center when we did analysis for a long time. And I remember when we began project U.S.-Ukraine policy dialogue with the Atlantic Council Years years before, we even can't predict that we will discuss in the beginning of 21st century wars in the world. We need peace, not war. What we should do now? Be strong enough to stop any of the country, any attempts to break international order. What we see now. So I am satisfied with uh, uh, bipartisan uh, support of uh, American Congress a new piece of legislation. We are really appreciate for the new support 150 million for military technical cooperation but what's important not d- decrease or not cut this international activity and assistance for the new administration because from my point of view it could be great mistake and we believe that this will continue to involve all the United States in the leadership keeping leadership role in the different part of the world. It's uh, simply to save money of taxpayers of America in the future and we need you as friends and supporters of Ukraine now believe me and I know that many of you contribute a lot of that in the future in the very next future Ukraine will be a very active contributor and supporter of not only United States and our Western alliance but all the world with people of good will and finally not less important You will see new initiative in the very next months to maintain peace or bring peace in Ukraine. But I, as ambassador of Ukraine, want to make the official statement. That any decision with situation in Ukraine without Ukraine, without decision by Ukrainian people, so-called compromises with Russia, to giving up Crimea, to decide with like a frozen conflict in Donbas, will not allow implement that. The only option for restore peace, withdraw Russian troops, we have all evidences of presence of Russian troops on our territory. Closing border, release hostages, and after that we can go for political decision. Thank you very much for your attention.
4: So good morning. My name is Alina Polyakova. I'm the Director of Research for Europe and Eurasia here at the Atlantic Council. And I just once again want to thank uh, Senator Portman, Minister Uresko, and Ambassador Charlie for their opening remarks to this full-day conference focusing on Ukraine. And of course, a big thanks to our partners from Kiev, uh, the Razumkov Center, which is uh, the premier research institute in Ukraine, uh, do a lot of uh, good analytical work on tracking what has been happening on the side of reforms. I just want to remind everybody that some of our panelists will be speaking Ukrainian. Some will be speaking English. All of you should have headphones. Uh, If you do not, we can get you some. Uh, Please uh, turn those on if you don't speak one of those languages. Uh, It's going to be number one for English, and number two for simultaneous Ukrainian translation. So it's really my pleasure to introduce a distinguished panel Uh, today to talk about reforms in civil society and government today. Uh, To my immediate left uh, is Mr. Pavlo uh, Pinzynik, Pinzynik, uh, who is the deputy head of the People's Front Party uh, political council. And he is a member of the Parliamentary Committee on Rules and Procedures, so very well positioned to give us a detailed account of the recent reforms on that front. Um, and to his left is, of course, uh, somebody we've seen here before uh, who has been a great supporter of encouraging reforms in Ukraine, particularly in civil society, Ms. Um, Alexa Chopivsky, who is the executive director of the American Center for a European Ukraine. She was a longtime journalist before that uh, and has spent quite a bit of time in Ukraine herself in recent years. So thank you, Alexa, for being here with us. Thank you. Uh, and then to Alexa's left, uh, we have. Uh, Professor, no, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Yuri, Yuri Yakimenko, who is the Deputy Director uh, General and Director of Political and Legal Progress in the Razumkov Center, our partner in this conference today. Uh, Dr. Yakimenko holds a PhD in political science uh, from the National Academy of Sciences Institute of Philosophy, and we're delighted to have him with us here today. And then last, but certainly uh, not least, uh, we have Professor uh, Victor Musika. Musiyaka, excuse me. It's sometimes hard to read English uh, when it's supposed to be Ukrainian. Uh, He's a research fellow with the Razumkov Center and has served as a <coughs> member of Parliament of the Verkhovna Rada from 2002 to 2006, uh, another tumultuous point in, in Ukraine's history. So thank you, thank you for joining Welcome. us uh, here today. Uh, So to begin, uh, we're just going to have a discussion for the next uh, 40 minutes, and I would like to bring in our audience as well to ask a few questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just as as a reminder, you have translation. So uh, I'd like to begin, uh, Yuri, with you, if I can. Um, Many have said, and uh, uh, Senator Portman said this again in his remarks this morning, uh, that Ukraine is fighting two wars. Uh, One, a military war in the Donbas, against Russian aggression, and then a second internal war against corruption within Ukraine itself. Uh, Since the Maidan Revolution of Dignity, the government has taken many significant steps to introduce more transparency. Uh, Two specific reforms that uh, are often discussed and lauded here in the West is the e-procurement system, Mm -hmm. uh, which makes uh, transparent and accountable all government procurements. Uh, it's a huge accomplishment that many Western countries don't have. Uh, and of course, the e-declaration system that requires government officials to declare their assets uh, and is accessible to anyone uh, to, for you. These initiatives, uh, I think, have been shown as a sign of progress. Uh, we're often talking about them, but in your view, um, have they actually produced any significant change when it comes to this internal battle against corruption?
5: Uh, Yes, thank you, Chair. Uh, Really, we are in a state of two wars. But uh, I would like to say that the second war is not only against corruption, it's only a part of this war. It's a part of wo- it's a ref- war for reforms. It's a war for our new future, and probably our success in this war is the uh, uh, most important non-military response to Russian aggression. Uh, of course, uh, 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 fighting corruption is a core component of this war. And those measures that you have uh, mentioned already are really very important, because we started to clean up the system of governance. And we started from the level of political corruption, first of all. And uh, in this case, especially e-declaration and transparency of incomes and assets of uh, politicians, of civil servants, of uh, top level, of judicial corpus, of prosecutors, are very important for society uh because uh, it's very uh, powerful anti-corruption tool the possibility to compare is very important uh, really you mentioned that now uh, our petitions and state servants probably the most transparent in the world uh, this is other side of this reform and there are some other implications of that but i would also uh, mention another uh, very important step it's introduction of uh, state financing of political parties in Ukraine. Because parties play a very important role in our political system, then form the parliamentary coalitions, then form the government. Uh, and together with this introduction of state finance of political parties, there are serious measures undertaken to make uh, clear party finance, electoral campaigns, party campaigns, so on and so forth. And uh, I think all together those uh, steps are very important in fighting. Uh, corruption on the political level, and then going from the top to the bottom uh, to clean up the other spheres of society from corruption.
4: So, in, in your view, is is this the right path forward, the top-down approach? Is that so? It should change begin at the top and then trickle down, or are there other ways that we can think about this war? Uh,
5: I think it's uh, really right approach because uh, people uh, taking their example of behavior from the political elite, from governmental elite, from elite in other spheres. And if uh, those elites and exemplify the corruption approach, uh, then it uh, deeply uh, spread in society. So to start with society, to, uh, it's really necessary to work also with society. By the thing to start with the top level, it's uh, for the beginning, it's the right approach, correct.
4: So just to follow up on that, we we'll- I think, be talking about this topic the entire time of the panel. Uh, but we've seen also some, I think, uh, concerning public opinions in Ukraine. Uh, some polls have shown that many Ukrainians think that corruption is actually getting worse, and if not getting worse, that's not getting better. Why do you think that despite these, uh, this progress, these very important changes, people still feel this way, your average Ukrainian?
5: Uh, Basically, uh, questions that people uh, got worse in their average living uh, doesn't depend uh, uh, directly from the level of corruption. Because uh, probably, it might be said that it's a result of the social price of reforms. Because we grow the prices for gas, we grow the prices for uh, households, we have a very high level of inflation that is not because of corruption, it's because of war, as the war spending, and so on and so forth. We have a set of social and economic factors that uh, move people to feel worse than before. Uh, and another story is that uh, during the Maidan, there was a huge level of people 's expectations of that Maidan will uh, immediately drive them to reforms to the better living. Uh, it happens in the other way, and uh, so the level of disappointment is also very, very high now. Uh, but uh, at least on the uh, results of opinion polls, we observe that there are no more corruption uh, than before when people uh, answered directly on the questions of pollsters. So the level is the same, it's not it the bigger, uh, but another part of the story is that uh, this is really problem that uh, is uh, uh, its importance uh, in media and the media attention is also uh, feels that the people uh, start talking more about that. This is really a societal problem, uh, but uh, in factual level, it's uh, I couldn't say that it, it is more than before.
4: Thank you. That's very interesting, uh, Victor. If I could ask you uh, to add to this conversation, so continuing to talk about anti-corruption reforms in Ukraine. Uh, The NABU, the National uh, Anti-Corruption Agency that was set up, has been another hailed achievement for Ukraine. Uh, But again, recently we have seen that the NABU has come under a lot of political pressure uh, when carrying out its investigations. Uh, In your view, has this particular new agency been effective? Uh, And if so, how has it been effective?
6: Я думаю, що… Прошу вибачити, я буду в українською відповідати. Знаєте, всі хочуть отримати зразу результати роботи НАБУ. НАБУ створено у 2015 році. На початку я мав безпосереднє відношення до конкурсу по обранню директора НАБУ. Ми тоді провели величезний конкурс, 170 було претендентів. І в кінці кінців ми зараз маємо на на чолі якого стоїть директор, пан Ситник. Одночасно було створено спеціальну антикорупційну прокуратуру. Треба мати на увазі, що після внесення змін до Конституції в минулому році прокуратура зовсім інше призначення тепер має. Вона, по-перше, не має загального нагляду. По-друге, вона підтримує обвинувачення в суді і це теж має відношення і до спеціального антикорупційного прокурора, вона також організовує і скеровує діяльність по проведенню досудового розслідування. І оце якраз зараз оці всі процеси, які відбуваються в сфері діяльності НАБУ, вони знаходяться під надзвичайно таким, ну, буквально під мікроскопом суспільним, Всі чекають, що когось уже мають буквально, як вона говорить, посадити. Особливо із сфери е, високих державних службовців. За цей час, поки Набу працює, воно фактично працює десь трохи більше року, треба мати на увазі, що значить працює. Там має бути 700 е, чоловік в складі набу. Із них е, десь до 200 детективів. І це тільки формування відбувається весь час, і одночасно йде розслідування. І треба мати на увазі, що якість, звичайно, роботи цієї, на мій погляд, недостатньо. Я дуже прискіпливо, звичайно, слідкую за діяльність НАБУ, тому що якесь мав відношення до його формування. І маю вам сказати, що оцей тиск суспільний, І увага до, із засобів масної інформації до діяльності НАБУ призводить до того, що вони допускають і витік таємниці слідства. Їм треба якимось чином аргументувати, що вони роблять щось і що у них є якісь результати і відповідати на якісь, скажімо, на протидію з боку тих, хто під слідством. А з іншого боку, і е, представники громадянського суспільства, які працюють в сфері боротьби з корупцією, теж тиснуть буквально на цей орган. І тому я вважаю, що там, де вони, ось зараз вони почали працювати по е, е, банківській системі, і тихо, спокійно собі ведуть слідство. І там я маю надію, що якраз і будуть результати. І тому, я думаю, сьогодні ми, коли говоримо про перспективи НАБУ, як органу боротьби з корупцією, наскільки вони ефективні, ось в цьому якраз році завершується остаточне формування всієї системи цього органу фінансування повністю буде забезпечено, буде створено окрім цього, окрім же НАБУ, у нас ще є органи, які працюють і співпрацюють з ним. У нас Національне агентство по запобіганню і протидії корупції. У нас е- закінчується в цьому році створення також Державного бюро розслідувань, де також будуть розслідувати уже не на найвищому рівні, як НАБУ, а в системі взагалі різних відносин на різних рівнях державного управління і місцевого самоврядування фактів корупції. Тому, я думаю, що коли ми говоримо про НАБУ, ми повинні мати на увазі весь цей спектр. Тим більше, я не говорю, думаю, можливо питання будуть. Все це іще замикається і на суди. Тому що результат – завжди буде в суді. І ось в цьому сенсі ще е, ідеї пов'язані з створенням спеціального антикорупційного суду і так далі. Я думаю, можливо, будуть питання на цю тему, поговоримо більш детально.
4: So I think that's a really important point to keep in mind that uh, even though much of the media focus has been on the NABU, it is part of a bigger infrastructure that has been developed and is developing in Ukraine and we're only seeing the beginnings of that infrastructure and how it will work. But I do want to follow up because Again, here in the United States and the Western countries, uh, we've also seen a lot of criticism of the general prosecutor's office, which is Mm. supposed to play the key independent function in prosecuting corruption cases specifically. And the problem in Ukraine is that the general prosecutor has not been seen um, until very recently as actually an independent. Uh, agent of the Ukrainian people and not beholden to special interests. Uh, The current uh, general prosecutor, Lutsenko, was just appointed um, last year in May, so he hasn't been in the job for even a year yet. Um, What do you, has he been able to achieve some profound changes um, in this, in, in the tenure that he has had?
6: Но ну, ви сказали, що генеральний прокурор у нас був непомітний. Не Вони завжди були помітні. На першому плані завжди генеральний прокурор, чим він займається, кого він переслідує, генеральна прокуратура, це завжди було. Але для нас, звичайно, важливо на сьогодні це ефективність функціонування е, цього органу. Я вам уже сказав, що змінилися функції конституційні, тепер уже прокуратура в системі правосуддя, а не окремий орган, каральний орган. Тепер вони займаються тільки обвинувачення, слідство і в системі правосуддя знаходиться. І от коли мова йде про генеральну прокурора, звичайно, це доволі специфічна ситуація в Україні, коли у нас генеральний прокурор був призначений, не маючи вищої юридичної освіти. Угу. І ви знаєте навколо цього, ну не знаєте, не знаєте, я вам тоді вас інформую, що навколо цього було немало е- різних, не дуже приємних таких ситуацій, але в кінці кінців, Виходили з того, що я прекрасно сам знаю Юрія Віталійовича, нашого генерального прокурора, в різних іпостаціях, проявах його політичних і так далі, що він готовий вести безкомпромісну боротьбу з корупцією, перш за все, із злочинами, особливо після Майдану, із злочинами, перш за все саме злочинами, пов'язаними із діяльністю попереднього президента Януковича і його всієї цієї команди. І ось в цьому сенсі я вам маю сказати, що різні критичні речі відбувалися і зауваження були до діяльності Генеральної прокуратури. Їх співпраця із НАБУ і спеціальною антикорупційною прокуратурою, до сих пір там є третя відповідні. Але ну, давайте почекаємо трошки, тому що зараз, здається, вже навіть передана справа до суду щодо Януковича притягнення до відповідальності. Зараз вже дозволено законом заочне притягнення до кримінальної відповідальності. Тепер будемо чекати, можливо, це буде перша справа нового генерального прокурора, ну, він менше mm. року генеральний прокурор. Тоді будемо дивитися, можливо, це якраз і вдалий був такий експеримент із призначенням генерального прокурора поза системи.
4: Thank you. I'm sure we'll come back to this topic, but I want to talk about the civil society component. Um, So, Alexa, you've been working with Ukrainian civil society for many years, uh, not just in Kyiv, but outside of Ukraine, uh, outside of the major cities as well. Um, In many ways, as we already heard, uh, Ukrainian civil society has been the watchdog of the government since the Maidan. Uh, but in your view, should civil society demands be even better incorporated into the decision-making process in Ukraine? Uh, Minister Gerasco mentioned that it's really Ukrainian civil society that's driving the reforms in Ukraine today. Um, do you think that is true? And uh, if so, what else can be done to better incorporate their demands? Thank you for this question, Alina, and to the Atlantic
7: Council for organizing and hosting today's event. I'd like to preface my response to your question by taking a step back and looking at the big picture. Ukraine has been tasked with not only building a new system and new institutions as we did here in the US over 200 years ago, but additionally, simultaneously, they are having to destroy the old, entrenched system. And these reforms really only took off three years ago. So at a time when rapid change has been required, civil society has substantively augmented the work of government, working as catalysts, as idea generators, as with Prozoro, aiding in implementation in some cases, and or serving as watchdog, as you, as you rightly said, Alina. Ukraine did not have the time for modernization of the kind that Western societies went through, one in which new values appeared gradually over time. It had to create its own new model of development, which finally picked up speed when a critical mass of these people with these new shared values came to the fore with Maidan. So given this context, to answer your question, Alina, should civil society demands be better incorporated into the decision-making process, I would argue that civil society itself is mandating that it be involved in the process, not only involved, but in fact, taking a leading role. Ukraine, as we know, it arguably has the strongest civil society in the entire region. And some of the most talented alums from Ukrainian civil society are now some of the most talented and respected and trusted lawmakers, for example, Ivanka Klimpush, Hanna Hopko, Svetlana all women, by the way. I Notice I just named all women. There's a very strong cadre of women in parliament, but there, but there needs to be more. And they all came from civil society. So in that sense, very organically, to answer your original question, civil society's demands and their priorities have, to a certain degree, infiltrated, and I use that word in the best possible sense, infiltrated the decision-making process when it comes to reforms in Parliament. People like, like them were not in Parliament three years ago. And that, in and of itself, is a great leap forward. So finally, three years of Ukrainian reforms prove that when we all work together as a team to have a sandwich effect, international partners, civil society, government, reforms work we here in washington need to keep supporting ukraine continue the vigilance about reforms in the past three years ukraine has achieved more than in the previous 23 years so reforms only work with this model
4: and it's a critical moment to protect the achievements to date thank you alexa i want to ask you about some bright spots as you could say um in ukrainian civil society i mean what you're describing i think is an interesting situation um, in my view, I tend to agree with you that uh, the government almost has no choice, after the I doubt especially. Uh, they have to listen to civil society demands or face the potential consequences of not listening. Um, but before I get there, you mentioned uh, the sandwich model, which we hear about a lot from Ukrainian civil society, um, basically this idea that you need uh, external pressure from the top, particularly from Western mm-hmm. governments. As well as bottom-up pressure in society, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to make sure that you know the government does the right thing, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, one one question for you: So, do you think that um, without that top pressure, there's enough uh, robustness, enough momentum from the bottom up to maintain the uh, I think very ambitious uh, reform agenda that Ukraine has set out for itself? This is a hypothetical situation. I'm not saying that Western is going away, but what is your your take on that? I think that at this point, there is enough
7: momentum to the degree that if it were to stop, Ukrainian civil society would not allow it. Hmm. And if I may, I'd like to give some concrete examples of this civil society that's thriving in connection with, for example, decentralization reform, with e-declaration reform, with the NABU creation, NABU, the anti-corruption bureau. A one shining example is Chesna. Chesna is a Kiev-based NGO. Chesna means honest or honestly. Um, But really, its work is substantively in the regions. They are very local. Their main mission is to promote key shifts toward transparency and accountability in politics, making elected officials accountable, and conversely, teaching people how to use their local officials. Uh, In one project, they gathered and analyzed information about local counselors. And out of 3,000 local politicians analyzed, they found that 1,300 of them were skippers. Skipper is defined as someone who attends no more than 35% of the sessions. Over 80% of these people failed to become counselors again. Chesno's campaign, this, uh, uh, this kind of shame and blame campaign, as I'll call it, contributed to their unwillingness to either run again or to their loss. Um, Another impressive Chesno campaign was called Follow the Money. And it answered the following key questions. What have local representatives done? How much have they earned? How much have the candidates spent on their campaigns? Why do we elect local representatives, and what do we do with them after the elections? For example, in following how politicians used, reported their income and expenditures, Chestnut created an app which photo captures billboards across the country, Mm -hmm. geolocates them, and confirms whether parties or candidates are reporting, per law, their expenditures. So people distrust parties, in part, because they don't understand how parties obtain and use their resources. So this campaign helped to explain to people how money is used, and it, in turn, created more trust and accountability, and it produced an unprecedented level of dialogue locally. Chesno didn't want to stop their work with the campaigns. They also helped explain kind of the post-election paradigm, and they trained citizens in how to utilize these local elected officials. Um, In connection with decentralization reform and e-declaration reform, Chesno is helping local activists to dig into local politicians' e-declarations which are then, of course, announced in, in the media and have all the associated runoff effects. Um, Chestnut estimates that their reach of all of their campaigns combined in one year was 15 million mm. across 23 oblasts of Ukraine, excepting Luhansk. And I'd like to add, um, Chestnut even pushed back at one point on one of its own compatriots and co-founders, actually. She's now a member of parliament. And, about her e-declaration and they essentially forced her to explain how she had made a mistake in her e-declaration in, in connection with how she acquired her apartment so their work is not selectively applied they hold the same standard across the board and this action demonstrated that there's no favoritism
4: thanks Alexis. That's, that's, that's a excellent example i think also of how civil society has been working across ukraine and outside of kiev Uh, to make sure that people feel more connected to their local governments and understand um, how money is spent and where it comes from. Um, Ukrainians, I think, if if anything, they're certainly ingenious uh, when it comes to figuring out how to marry technology and politics. Of course, the Maidan was an example of that. Um, So thank you. We'll come back to the civil society question. Um, I think there's many more bright spots that Mm -hmm, we could talk mm -hmm, about. mm -hmm. Uh, But I want to give Pavlov the opportunity to discuss current politics. Um, you're, after all, the deputy head of uh, the People's Front Party's political council. Uh, so I want to ask you about current Ukrainian politics a bit. Uh, some in Ukraine today, saying they're disappointed with the pace of reforms, are calling for early elections, uh, parliamentary elections. In your view, is this the right tactic to be pursuing at this moment?
8: Thank you for the question. To answer it correctly, you need to send to мої колеги пані Наталі Яресько і Юрія Якименка, які нагадали нам усім про те, що реформи, які були здійснені в Україні за останні два роки, зовсім не були солодкою цукеркою, скоріше, гіркою пігулкою для українського населення. Вони призвели до істотного зниження поточного стану соціальних стандартів, вони призвели до болючих процесів в банківській системі вони призвели до майже критичної невпевненості в завтрашньому стані, економічному стані українських домогосподарств. Менше з тим, вони заклали серйозні підвалини для просування на майбутнє, для сталого розвитку української економіки, українських державних інститутів. Але давайте спробуємо оцінити, а куди мав би з погляду нашого кола спілкування з вами, куди мав би рухатися подалі цей прогрес. Ми читаємо Заяву Міжнародного валютного фонду, яка була видана нещодавно в зв'язку з виділенням Україні чергового траншу в рамках п'ятирічної програми співпраці з Україною. І там сказано, що ключовими реформами, які повинні відбутися в Україні ближчим часом, є реформа на ринку землі, тобто приватизація землі, і пенсійна реформа, одною з основних складових якої є підвищення ефективного пенсійного віку. Ось немає жодних сумнівів, що е, подібні реформи призведуть до спроби провести подібні реформи, чинним урядом призведуть до фантастичного спротиву не тільки всього парламенту, але й українського суспільства в основній її масі. Е, немає жодного сумніву, що немає гарантії проведення цих реформ в принципі. А тепер давайте задамо себе один непросте питання. Е, проведення позачергових виборів, чи навіть чергових виборів, приведе до влади ті політичні еліти, які будуть спроможні провести ці болючі реформи. Дуже малимовірно. Два уряди, поточний уряд на чолі з прем'єром Гройсманом і попередній уряд на чолі з президентом, прем'єром Яценюком, фактично поклали весь свій запас політичної довіри на те, щоб провести реформи. Чи зможуть вони бути, чи зможуть вони знайти достойних спадкоємців, чи є ці достойні спадкоємці, які готові пройти до влади і провести подальші необхідні на реформи? на мою суб'єктивну точку зору ні. Тепер повертаючись до питання підтримки Заходу для реформи підтримки з боку заходу для реформ в Україні. Олекса згадувала про те, що важливою складовою взаємодії західних демократій з Україною є такий елемент, як тиск на уряди, для того, щоб уряд був послідований в процесі реформ. От в мене складається зараз таке враження, що цей тиск є, звичайно, дуже ефективною формою взаємодії, але треба бути дуже обережним з цим інструментом, тому що ми можемо опинитися в ситуації, коли уряд такі реформи здійснював, Не знайде спадкоємців, які будуть її продовжувати. Тому що громадські організації, громадський сектор, який дійсно дуже добре розвиваються в Україні, безумовно цих спадкоємців знайде. Тобто критиків влади, критики влади збережуться, навряд чи вони прийдуть до нового парламенту. А хто прийде до нового парламенту? Наші соціалічні розслідування показують, що великі шанси на проходження до нового парламенту мають такі політичні сили з якими навіть розмова про такі реформи буде неможливою. Це популісти, це не тільки українська тенденція, це загальноєвропейська, загальносвітова тенденція, це праві популісти, ліві популісти, це хто завгодно, але не прихильники подальшого розвитку реформ. Водночас у нас ще є шанс зробити, може і не максимум, але зробити те, що дійсно істотно вплине на стан справ в Україні. Ми багато говоримо про Національне антикорупційне бюро. А давайте задумаємося, яка основна маса кримінальних розслідувань розслідується наразі Національним антикорупційним бюро. Ці розслідування стосуються керівництва державних підприємств. А якщо ми за один рік, який залишиться до виборів, приватизуємо всі державні підприємства, то може и буде менше проблем в оцінці діяльності Національного антикорупційного бюро, і загалом ситуація покращиться. Тому моє особисте прохання до всіх, хто має стосунок до України і хто впливає на український уряд і на українських політиків, все-таки спробувати підтримати їх в тому, що дійсно матиме довгостроковий позитивні наслідки. І не підтримувати тих політиків, які пропонують панацеї в вигляді дострокових виборів, швидкої зміни влади, швидкої зміни політики. І от завжди запитувати тих політиків одне питання – в чому полягає ваша позитивна програма? Дякую.
4: Thank you. Uh, so you mentioned the success of uh, the parliament in passing some key reforms. You already mentioned quite a few here on the panel. Uh, we NABU is a separate issue, but e-declaration, e-procurement. Um, of course, we've also had a massive restructuring of the, uh, the tax code, of the energy sector. Of course, Minister Esco was responsible for a lot of those reforms. Uh, but what have been some of the perhaps more less known reforms that you can point to, that, uh, the parliament has been able to pass, that you could tell us about that maybe we don't have a Дійсно, дуже
8: дуже велика увага приділяється антикорупційній реформі, а цьому приділяються антикорупційні реформі в тій частині, що стосується створення нових інститутів боротьби з корупцією. Як на мій погляд, більш важливі важливі речі відбуваються менш помітно для дійсно для людського ока. І вони менш зрозумілі. Ну, наприклад, ми можемо говорити про величезні зміни на ринку електроенергії ринку газу. Нові, нові на зараз в Верховній Раді вже готовий до розгляду і прийняття в цілому новий закон про ринок електроенергії, який відповідає європейським стандартам. Про ринок, закон про ринок газу вже прийнятий, розділений функції транспортування і постачання газу. Знову ж таки, для це хороший приклад для того, щоб нагадати, як працюють реформи в Україні. Буквально нещодавно, на минулому тижні, Національна комісія регулювання електроенергетики, наш регулятор, прийняла рішення про встановлення для всіх споживачів газу плати за білінг. Плата за білінг існує в багатьох країнах, це плата за потужність, плата за приєднання до газових мереж. Негативний результат в громадській думці був настільки сильним, Хоча це відповідало нашим, е, нашим зобов'язанням перед Міжнародним валютним фондом. Негативний результат був настільки сильним, що і уряд, і президент були вимушені звернутися до Національної комісії з закликом про відтермінування або скасування цього рішення. Як на мене, це зараз є найголовнішою проблемою. От. Що, що можна зробити в цьому аспекті? Для того, щоб дати можливість займатися уряду, займатися е, політичній коаліції, Верховній Раді, займатися так званими непопулярними реформами, треба полегшити її ситуацію в якихось інших секторах. Ми е, дійсно тратимо 5% валового внутрішнього продукту на оборону. Це величезна сума. Для України це порядка, якщо не помиляюся, пані 130 мільярдів, здається, гривень щорічно в сектору оборони. Це близько 5 мільярдів доларів. 5 мільярдів доларів, 8 мільярдів, наразі вже 8 мільярдів доларів, це та сума, яку ми з великими труднощами освоїли в вигляді траншів від Міжнародного валютного фонду. Це абсолютно співставні речі. Всі транші Міжнародного валютного фонду, які були надані Україні для покриття дефіциту платіжного балансу, де-факто, можуть вимірюватися одним річним оборонним бюджетом України. Дуже важко країні, яка тратить такі величезні гроші на боротьбу з зовнішнім ворогом, одночасно воювати з внутрішньою опозицією, яка розповідає про те, що вона краще знає, що таке реформи і як ці реформи потрібно проводити.
4: Thank you. Uh, so I want to ask uh, maybe one question of the entire panel before I turn it over to the audience. Uh, we've been having the conversation focused on anti-corruption. Uh, in your view, and I'd like all of you to think about this answer, uh, what would be the top concrete reform that still needs to happen um, that you think would be a strong signal that Ukraine is on the right path when it comes to fighting uh, corruption? Um, let me, s- who would like to start, I just pick some. we did just start with you, Yuri. So would you like to start us
5: uh, off? I think that uh, if we exemplify the fighting of uh, corruption as the most important sign of progress of reforms in Ukraine, I think we have to create uh, the complete circle of this, of this system. We have to bridge all the gaps that exist within this system. And we have to construct a completely uh, coherent system of, uh, from the very beginning to the end. Uh, so starting with the anti-corruption bureau, and then prosecutor's office, and then we step by step come into judiciary system. Uh, and it's directly linked to the reform of judiciary system. And then we have uh, a complete, uh, uh, this complete mechanism of how to, uh, how to guarantee that uh, any corruptionist uh, couldn't avoid uh, a penalty for his deeds. And at uh, the same time, so you have to guarantee uh, the principle of uh, rule of law will be keeping in Ukraine, as the principle of presumption of innocence as well.
4: So, just to uh, very concretely, if you want, you, you mentioned the reform of the judiciary, which Kevin yes. talked about. What would be a concrete reform that would uh, give confidence to the fact that the Ukrainian government is motivated? to make sure the judges are autonomous and independent and are free from special interests?
5: Uh, I think Victor Olvencich knows better. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Fair enough. But I might come back to you, because I want a concrete, concrete reform, a very clear step. So, uh, Victor, would you like to answer that question?
6: Uh, you know, what you are asking, is it something that you, you know, what reform do so we do, to make it right Цю проблему. Ну не буває так. Скарі, не права, буває так, так. Справа в тому, що це, як говорив правильно, я з ним абсолютно згодний, Юрій Віленіч, це е, завдання комплексне, це системна, це і е, хвороба системна державного управління, корупція. Це і системна має бути діяльність. Ну, от скажіть, будь ласка, приймають рішення, президент укази, Верховна Рада видає закони, потім підзаконні акти постанови Кабмін приймає, потім ще підзаконні акти, потім ще, а ви знаєте, що саме там, коли змінюються закони, приймаються нові якісь підзаконні акти, все це є елементи, де вплива, вплив корупції буває, і от туди вони влізають таким чином, що їх прослідкувати оці е, корупційні дії дуже важко. Так Я вважаю, що якщо з боку президента, кабінету міністрів Верховної Ради, будуть перші такі е, кроки, які на, будуть зрозумілі для суспільства, що вони направлені на те, щоб контролювати, щоб там не, не відбувалося оцих, цих дій, які створюють корупційні оці всі небезпеки. По-друге, я вважаю, що ось, якщо конкретно говорити, то нам необхідно вирішити питання із судом. Але я не думаю, що я, наприклад, не є прихильник створення антикорупційного суду. Тим більше так, як записано в законі, вищий антикорупційний суд, ніби один. А це має бути система. А ще краще, це має бути судді спеціалізовані, які спеціалізуються на боротьбі із корупцією на розслідуваннях і, 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 в НАБУ, а вони розглядають ці питання. І аж до Верховного суду. І тоді оце перший може бути крок так як ви ставите питання показовий, що вирішуються питання з завершення цієї системи від розслідування до винесення рішення судом.
4: I take your points, both of your points that there needs to be a systemic effort, but at the same time systemic efforts don't just come out of the blue. Uh, you need small steps to get there. Um,
9: mm-hmm.
4: And, you know, I think some of the issues that we face sometimes in Washington we have these kinds of discussions is that we get very little of those uh, small concrete steps. But Alexa, I saw you had uh, your hand up, so maybe you can fill us in. If
7: I may, I'll take a little bit of liberty with this question. And instead of of naming a specific actual concrete reform, I'd like to suggest a mechanism, a tool for implementing reforms going Mm -hmm. forward. And that would be I'd like to address this question of talent.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: Ukraine has talent that I would argue is not being utilized as much as it should be. An example that comes to mind is um, post-Euromaidan. A group of young professionals in their 20s and 30s who had all received Western educations, they came together and perform, uh, created PGI, Professional Government Initiative, which is now the Professional Government Association, PGA. These are motivated, ambitious patriots who've received Western, Western educations and have come back to their country because they want to affect change. Um, their key assumptions when they formed this group was that, one, the government is interested in getting professionals to join, and two, The government prefers and will prioritize hiring professionals with an international education. Um, They had a promising early run in the euphoria of the post Maidan days. I think about 50 of them were placed into executive and legislative branches. But soon after, that momentum stalled. Mm -hmm. And many PGI placements have, in fact, left the government, just citing kind of sabotage, in some cases, and and fatigue. so my, my request for reform would be to, to use these um, motivated young professionals to effect change. And this group, there's now you know, several thousands of them in this association. They haven't become demotivated. De- in fact, going forward, amongst their priorities, they plan to, one, fight to change salaries to market levels in order to allow these professionals to stay in government and work for a minimum of, of two to three years. And also, they want to build awareness that well-paid, accountable Mm -hmm. professionals are a key to success. I should highlight, we're here in Washington. We have a shining example of a PGA profile working here at the Embassy of Ukraine, actually, Oksana Mm -hmm. Shuler. She's not here today. Mm -hmm. But we need more people like Oksana um, working in decision making and influential positions.
4: One, another piece of the, of the bigger uh, puzzle I, I think and it's important one to bring up thank you and uh, Pavlo, last word to you
8: Можливо я не не потраплю в загальний мейнстрім. якщо потрібно якщо потрібно визначити один крок, але який буде визначальним на роки вперед, я би сказав так, приватизація. Приватизація державного майна. І це, це не вирішить поточних економічних проблем, пов'язаних з наповненням державного бюджету. І на даному етапі це вже, не, це вже не задача приватизації. Рівень ціна активів в Україні упала настільки, приватизаційна потенційна вартість, що говорити про приватизацію як про фактор наповнення бюджету я би вже не став. А от говорити про неї як про фактор змін, як про драйвер змін. Причому ці зміни можуть відбутися дуже-дуже швидко. Корупція є... Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um,
4: I want to open up uh, to the audience. So uh, there'll be microphones going around. Please wait for the mic. Please introduce yourself and please ask a question. Uh, I refrain from making long commentary. Um, Adrian, please. It's coming.
10: <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't know if it's uh, it's not on. No.
8: Anyway, speak loud. All right.
10: Anyway, uh, m- m- I want to continue the, the the interesting topic that Alexa raised, which is recruiting reformers and high-level talent. And I think we have a bit of a disbalance in how Western uh, aid policy is structured. And uh, the greatest complaint now of reformers inside government is this, precisely the idea that wages are not of the kind that can sustain uh, people who have uh, capacity. And so when we see the failures of the procuracy, uh, and we think that until the beginning of this year, they were making $200 a month as their base salary. It's now between $400 and $700. You can understand why it's very hard to recruit talented prosecutors. And- prosecutorial cases may fail not because of corruption but or there uh, or someone bribing a prosecutor but simply because talented people are not able to mm-hmm. gather evidence convey evidence and and move it forward the same thing in the judiciary where uh, low wages were also a factor uh, in corruption uh, so the the in, you know in in my question is uh, uh, how uh, how can one structure and reconfigure the aid package that would enable uh, more of the talent that is resident in civil society uh, to, uh, uh, to move into the state sector because you can't create a two-tiered structure. At the moment, the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Economy are handling this by having, say, 100 people that are paid by the, by the European uh, Union funds as consultants, but they don't actually have full ministerial or sub-ministerial rights. And I think that's another, uh, another program, so a problem. So I want to ask the legislator, is there anything that can be done in Ukraine in legislation that can enable, if not a two-tiered, but some kind of an accommodation to have higher wages for key uh, for key personnel in, in, in ministries that would attract mm-hmm. the best talent? And secondly, is there anything in the way that we- the West uh, can uh, uh, structure its aid package to put more money to bring civil society, not uh, against the state, but into the state mm-hmm. to, to propel reforms from within?
8: Насправді, в Україні прийнятий закон про державну службу, здійснено доволі серйозна реформа цієї державної служби, в неї визначено там, в тому числі, і порядок оплати державних службовців. Так от, визначення порядку, рівня, вірніше, оплати державних службовців, праці державних службовців, незалежно від їхніх талантів, а ви знаєте, що державна служба – це доволі консервативна система, яка передбачає певне кар'єрне зростання, в залежності від якого здійснюється оплата праці. У нас були експерименти в нашому уряді з залученням іноземців в уряд. Їхня праця, праця оплачувалася, наскільки мені відомо, так само, як і праця українських службовців. Вони працювали, так би мовити, за ідею. Ну, менше з тим, експеримент довів, що краще системної роботи нічого немає. Тому піднімати рівень оплати держав... праці державних службовців потрібно по всій системі. Можливостей вичленити найбільш талановитих чи найкращих, напевно, на цьому етапі нема. Політична, ну, я не, принаймні не вбачаю. З політичної точки зору будь-які ініціативи, пов'язані з підвищенням рівної оплати державних службовців, сприймаються суспільством вкрай mm-hmm. негативно. Не просто негативно, а вкрай негативно. Це викликає роздратування і фантастичний спротив з боку суспільства. Це друге. Третє. Мені здається, що все-таки, якщо ми доб'ємося хоча б мінімального підвищення рівня оплати праці в публічній службі, то у нас є достатньо можливостей вже в рамках тих процедур, які виписані законом про державну службу, провести повноцінні конкурси і набрати талановитих людей як із західним бекграундом. And
4: Alexa, did you want to respond to that question? You brought up the topic on talent.
7: I'm not a legislator. I, that's why I'm curious to hear, hear these thoughts. I don't have the answer, but I agree with you, Adrian. Currently, NGOs are often able to attract the higher caliber of talent than the government because of Western donor funds. And sometimes the more capable professionals are, in fact, Investigating the government that are in in the government. So I agree with you that that it should be a priority to figure out a way
4: to change this system. Uh, Victor, did you want to respond yeah. as well?
6: Да, я хотів <зв>. сказати, щодо заробітних плат судів. Правильно говорити, абсолютно, і це уже враховується у нас при. Проведені судові реформи, закон про судоустрій, статус судів прямо передбачає, які заробітні плати, співвідношені з мінімальною заробітної плати і так далі. І я вам скажу, що ну, показувати теж суспільству, воно не, не всі громадяни читають закон про судоустрій статус судів, теж дуже небезпечно з точки зору можливої реакції. Скажімо, суддя. Суддя на рівні значить, першої інстанції, там, в нього від тисячі до півтори-двох тисяч може бути доларів, я в доларовому еквіваленті. Апеляційний суд там уже 3-4 тисячі, Верховний суд до 6-7-8 тисяч а то і більше, там в залежності від в, 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 стажу роботи і так далі, там за 200-300 тисяч, це може себе уявити, більше 10 тисяч місяць, це в місяць, не в рік, в місяць. І е, ви знаєте, я от, наприклад, мене це надзвичайно турбує, те, що Конституційний суд у нас в Україні зіграв, відіграв надзвичайно негативну роль в встановленні диктатури Януковича. Він прийняв рішення, відповідне до повернення Конституції в редакції первинні, абсолютно антиконституційно. І це дало повноважні відповідні Януковичу у 10-му році. І ось закон про Конституційний суд, який, можливо, завтра вже і стане, проект закону, стане законом. Можливо, Верховна Рада, поки ми тут заходимося, в Вашингтоні там проголосує цей закон. Так він передбачає, що ці всі суми судді Верховного суду «Заробітна плата» Можете на півтора. Можете уявити. І я дивився розклад, один із фахівців мені давав, це неофіційно, але він показував, до двох років суддя, консійно суда, вони на 9 років обираються, до двох років така заробітна плата, 188 тисяч гривень, це уявіть собі, ну, це десь близько там, 7-8 тисяч да, доларів. А вже в кінці, до 9 років, там до 14 тисяч доларів в місяць. За що, я запитую? За те, що вони антиконційні. І там сидять судді, і з них більшість – це ті, які оцей переворот антиконційний здійснювали. І оце вони будуть таку е, заробітну плату отримати. Тому тут, ви розумієте, речі і політичні ще присутні. Thank you. Uh, let me
4: take a few questions um, at once. Um, so Sir, please introduce yourself and ask a question.
9: My name is Paul Thomas. I've been uh, owning, operating several businesses in Ukraine for 25 years. I want to I follow up and ask for further elaboration on the comments. The number one systemic problem in Ukraine, I know this from personal experience dealing with prosecutors, judges, bureaucrats, I don't even want to remember. The problem Ukraine has is that there has been fundamentally zero serious structural reform of the judicial and prosecutorial services. They are answerable, effectively, exclusively to the president of Ukraine. NGOs are superb. They cannot force Poroshenko to reform the judiciary and the prosecutorial services. They, they cannot be reformed from within. The system is designed to operate in an extraordinarily corrupt way. I know this from painful experience. What needs to be done, and only the high level European governance, America quite frankly beating the heck out of the Ukrainian government, are you going to get deep structural reform. They need to be rebuilt rebuilt structurally and staffed from the bottom up. And until that's done, all these reforms remain extremely fragile. The reference to Yanukovych constitutional court, he became president, constitutional court changed the constitution overnight to make him effectively a dictator. This president or the next one could eliminate or block Every reform that's ever been implemented in Ukraine, precisely because of no reform of the prosecutorial or judicial function. So, if you could comment on how to do that, not in small steps, we need gigantic steps. Thank you.
4: Okay, thank you. I'll take a,
5: um, before you answer, I'll take another question. Anadia, please.
10: I don't think all reforms are that complicated. Uh, for instance, what is the progress within the Verjol Narada to uh, stop people voting for others? To me, that's a very basic form of corruption. And as far as the judicial reforms, there have been some judicial reforms, except they've been blocked once they reach a certain stage. You know. You can go on the internet and see long lists of federal and state officials that have been convicted uh, and are in jail. There is yet to be, I think, one case in Ukraine of significance. And also, I have a curious question. Has there been an effort to investigate the poisoning of one of Ukraine's presidents?
4: Thank you. I will take one last question before I turn it back to the audience. I see a hand far in the back. I can't tell who it is, but
11: I see a hand. Um, My name is Bob Homans. I've been living in Ukraine for the past 10 years, and I'm kind of a disinterested observer, I suppose. Um, I attended something last December called the Tiger Conference in Kiev. And there was a panel uh, at that conference on recovering stolen assets. And um, there was zero optimism at that panel about the, prospect of ever recovering any stolen assets. Some of, them, some of those assets have actually been frozen in Western countries. Has there been any progress? We've, I've uh, heard today about these new agencies, but I was wondering if uh, people feel that there's been a little bit more progress in that area since last December. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much. So we have three questions. One about the big steps that could take place for structural reforms that could not be so easily reversed. Question about uh, the investigation around the poisoning of Yushchenko. And the question about asset recovery. So who would like to take a first step?
6: Yeah. Victor, please. If I understood uh, correctly <coughs> about structural reform in the judicial system, we have changed the Constitution <coughs> Відбулися зміни до Конституції в минулому, в минулому році. Внесені зміни щодо судової реформи. Називається щодо правосуддя. І з точки зору того питання, як ви ставите, там важливим є ось такі моменти. По-перше, прибрали офіційно, текстуально в Конституції політичний вплив на формування судової влади. До цього у нас було так життєво Верховна Рада призначає, на перший п'ятирічний строк призначає президент. Зараз у нас спеціальний орган створений, Вища Рада Правосуддя. При ній є ще Вища, вища Комісія суд, по судовій владі, яка підбір здійснює, перевіряє всіх цих кандидатів на посади суддів передає Вищій раді правосуддя та приймає рішення щодо призначення на посаду. І, як у нас говорить, чисто церемоніально президент видає указ від імені держави про призначення цієї людини на державну посаду судді. Маю вам сказати, одна є деталь, яка, наприклад, мене теж напружує. У нас дуже багато вам це для вас не секрет, про це мова сьогодні йде, що судова влада в час має закиди щодо корупційності, про те, що суди, суди і судді корумповані. І ми пішли так, як нам рекомендувала Європейська комісія, Венеціанська комісія, як наші європейські колеги рекомендували. Ми створили оцю Вищу Раду Правосуддя з 21 члена, із яких 11 суддів. Оце я собі і задавав, ставив питання. Я і як член Конституційної комісії, який працював в цій комісії по зміну до Конституції, і там ставив питання. ну Якщо ми закидаємо суддям, що вони не дуже довірі підлягають, то як ми їх більшість там робимо, суддів, все рівно в цій комісії? Більшість суддів, це вже елемент корпоративності, ви знаєте. Якщо судді е, схильні до цього, то вони можуть створити таку корпорацію, яка буде сама вже вирішувати питання щодо своїх колег. Тут є небезпека, але я думаю, що це треба просто тримати під контролем і подивитися, як воно буде працювати. Ще тільки зараз почалось формування Верховного суду. У нас буде там 200 суддів Верховного суду, зараз перші 120. І ось зараз іде оцей конкурс, я вам скажу, Туди, мабуть, можливо, не тільки і за зарплати, а це престижно. Дуже величезний конкурс на посади судів Верховного суду. І е, я okay. так думаю, що це тільки я завершую. Е, я думаю, що оцей е, період нам необхідно пройти не просто. знаєте, от чому у нас оці всі е, постійно вилазять десь недопрацювання, тому що ми все зразу робимо. Всі органи формуємо, всі органи налагоджуємо, цю судову реформу робимо, судді різні інстанції створюємо. Тому тут можливі якраз оці небезпеки. Тому необхідно відслідковувати. Я думаю, що якраз громадянське суспільство і має цим займатися. Дякую.
4: Дякую. 30 секунд
6: відповіді до
5: іншого паніля because everything is linked uh, with one another. Uh, It's a really problem of our expectations and the need of reforms of judiciary and prosecutor's office and law enforcement system at all, and the concrete steps of uh, implementing of those reforms. Uh, before, it's very uh, good approach, it was uh, just after the uh, Maidan was uh, sound that we have to fire all judges and we have appoint all new judges in their position. But if we we'll go by this way, uh, we for some period uh, didn't have any court working in, in the Ukraine. It's it's impossible uh, to admit this situation. Uh, The same is with the prosecutor's office. The process of renovation of cadres within the prosecutor's office is very slow, and inertia is very big. And the problem of uh, reformation is very complicated because of different factors, including limitation of other laws. We have to follow within this problem to the principle of rule of law. We can't fire a judge. We have dismiss any uh, prosecutor from his position without uh, some background, without, without legal background, only by fact of his belonging into this position. So it's uh, another part of this problem and uh, if we are speaking about uh, we have to we have have to have evidence of his uh, illegal behavior on those positions so in this process uh, there are a lot of such obstacles that prevent from reaching a a very uh, fast and comprehensive and very good results we have this uh, process going, but it is going slower that we would like uh, to go, and probably it's not uh, the first and the last problems within this, uh, this process of reformation. Thank
4: you. And, Alexa, you're
8: passing? I, I don't have anything substantive to add. Okay. Були два питання, які залишилися без відповіді. Це питання про неособисте голосування mm. в Верховній Раді uh. України. На моє глибоке переконання це питання підвищення рівня політичної культури. От. І я дуже радий з того, що е- останнім часом рівень терпимості до таких проявів набагато знизився, як у суспільства, так і у моїх колег народних депутатів України. Тому такі випадки є скоріше винятком, ніж правилом. От я, я радий, що для того, щоб знизити рівень е, таких порушень, не довелося вживати якихось, скажем так, заходів обмежувальних на, на, на зразок там сенсорної кнопки чи, е, чи чогось такого. Найкраще, коли це робиться добровільно і коли це є коли це випливає безпосередньо з рівня політичної культури е, наших політиків, було ще питання, яке стосувалося повернення вивезених активів Заниковича. Наскільки я розумію ситуацію, основною проблемою є відсутність обвинувальних вироків суддів так, так. українських, які би вступили в законну силу, які би давали можливість міжнародним, за допомогою міжнародно правових засобів забезпечувати повернення цих активів. Генеральний прокурор України звернувся до Верховної Ради України з проханням надати йому певні повноваження, задля проведення заочних розслідувань і заочних судових mm-hmm. процесів за відсутності фігурантів цих процесів. Верховна Рада погодилася на таку пропозицію, дала йому таку можливість, і ми одержали запевнення від Генерального прокурора, що ближчим часом це дасть йому можливість довести в суді вину колишніх посадовців пер періоду Януковича і, відповідно, забезпечити і повернення цих активів. Дякую за запитання.
4: Thank you. Sure. No. Uh, uh, we're, we're completely out of time, seconds. no, we have no time. <laughs> uh, we have the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State uh-huh. uh, who will be delivering uh, remarks in just five minutes. Uh, Ms. Bridget Brink, we're also delighted to have her. We're gonna take a five minute break. So please, very quickly, grab something to drink and come back. And please, before you go, thank the panel uh, along with me for this fascinating discussion.